good afternoon to those of you joining us from across the United States, from across Canada, and other parts of the world. My name is Joseph Wong, and I'm a professor and vice president international at the University of Toronto. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the second event in our four-part series titled The World We Want, which we present to you in partnership with Zocalo Public Square. Today, we are asked to consider what a new Cold War would mean for the world. Soaring tensions between China and the United States have been a defining feature of international relations for the last several years. And while we may see shifts in this dynamic under new U.S. leadership, we know that the implications of this relationship will be felt across the globe and for years to come. This is true too in Canada, which despite its middle power status, finds itself increasingly caught up in this new superpower rivalry. We are lucky to have with us a stellar lineup of speakers from UCLA, Stanford, and the New York Times. Today's discussion also features Margaret McMillan, a distinguished Canadian intellectual and world-renowned scholar of international history. We are delighted that she is participating today and honored to have her as part of the University of Toronto community. It is now my pleasure to introduce Moira Shuri from Zocalo Public Square. Thank you, Joseph. Welcome to Zocalo Public Square, a creative unit of Arizona State University. We are proud to partner with the University of Toronto for this event series. This series is also made possible by the generous contribution of the Consulate General of Canada. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and convene events like the one we're watching today. Find out more on our website, zocalopublicsquare.org. When we reached out to Phil Pan to moderate today's event, we felt a little guilty tapping one of the busiest journalists on the planet. He was the Washington Post's bureau chief in Moscow and in Beijing, and he now runs coverage of China for the New York Times. Phil has also written one of the all-time great books on modern China, Out of Mouth Shadow. His work has been recognized by the Livingston Prize for International Reporting and the Asia Society's Osborne Elliott Prize for Reporting on Asia. Over to you, Phil. Thank you, Moira. I'm delighted to speak today with three distinguished scholars to consider how the competition between China and the United States is playing out around the world. I'm pleased to introduce our panel. Margaret McMillan is a historian and professor at the University of Toronto and the author of more than 10 books, including Nixon in China, The Week That Changed the World, and most recently, War, How Conflict Shaped Us. She is the visiting distinguished historian at the Council on Foreign Relations. She is a companion of the Order of Canada, as well as a member of the Order of the Companions of Honor. Oriana Mastro is a center fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. She is also a defense and foreign policy fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She studies Chinese military and security policy, war termination, and coercive diplomacy, and currently serves as strategic planner in the United States Air Force Reserve. Christopher Tang is a distinguished professor and chair in business administration at UCLA, where he studies global supply chains and social innovation in developing countries. He is a co-founder of UCLA's dual degree program with the National University of Singapore. He has authored six books and numerous chapters and articles on global supply chain management and has consulted with multinational companies such as HP, IBM, and Nestle. Thank you everyone for speaking with me today. Our subject today is what would a new Cold War mean for the world? The prospect of a Cold War between the United States and China has been a subject of debate and discussion for a long time, going as far back as when I first worked in Beijing in the 1990s but it really seems to have heated up in the past several years. Some say this new Cold War has already started. Others say it could still be avoided. In effect, we use the phrase as a sort of shorthand for the growing competition and friction between the two most powerful countries in the world. I thought we could begin by exploring the ideas that are embedded in that phrase. Margaret, what do you think were the key features of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union? And to what extent do they exist today in the current relationship between the United States and China? I think historical analogies are always very helpful because they help us to think through the present and help us to ask questions. But I think we also need to ask what is the same and what is different. And 
clearly what is the same is that you have two very large powers, um, both important in their own regions, but both with global, global ambitions and a global reach, which was certainly true of the Soviet Union and the United States. I think what is different is that the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was very much an ideological war as well as a war of, of military force and a war of attempts to find allies. And I think in both cases, the United States and the Soviet Union claim to be speaking for a better path of the world. Now, we have elements of that in the current tension between China and the United States, but I think not in the same way. Um, we don't have this outright conflict between communism and democracy and, and capitalism. What I think is also different is that the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States was really distant. Um, they had been allies temporarily in the Second World War, but they had almost no trading relationship. They had a very limited diplomatic relationship. There was very little travel between the two countries. And I think what's very different today is that the United States and China are deeply involved in each other's economies in ways that the United States and the Soviet Union weren't. And I think another thing that is different, and I'm sure others will have much more to say about this, but I think another thing that is different is that in the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were such dominant superpowers, particularly in the first decades after the Second World War, that they were able to pressure many of the other countries in the world, sometimes who came voluntarily, to take their sides. And I think what we have today is, is far more multipolarity. I think there are powers such as India, such as Brazil, such as South Africa, and powers around the world, which have their own autonomy, and I think are less likely to be pressured to sign up to join either the United States or China. But as you say, it is something that's been very much talked about, and I think it is very concerning that the two great powers, the United States and, so, and, and China, seem to be moving into a position that is increasingly adversarial. During the Cold War, the United States um, came to the conclusion that the Soviet Union was inherently expansionist and that its influence had to be contained in areas of strategic importance. And there was both a military and an ideological component, as you say. You know, they, there was a desire to stop the spread of communism. There seems to be more debate now about China's intentions and goals. It doesn't seem as, as settled as it, a question as it was during the, 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 the Cold War, the first Cold War that we're discussing. Um, in particular, how much of a threat uh, China poses to the United States and to what extent the United States could live with what China is trying to achieve. Um, one argument advanced during the Trump administration has been that Beijing is spreading, uh, is trying to spread an authoritarian model around the world that, pose, uh, that poses a challenge to the United States. Oriana, how, how would you characterize that threat and what do you think it means for the rest of the world? The first thing I will say is you summed it up very clearly. China uh, is not the same threat that the Soviet Union was. And that's why I think this Cold War distinction is not very useful. The Trump administration tried to paint China as an ideological threat. And I think this is largely because uh, for strategists, great power thinkers, historians, we know how the Cold War ended. It ended well for the United States. So we're hoping to box in our competition with China along the same terms. The problem is that China has been smarter than that. And in particular, they have built power and they exercise power, not only differently than the Soviet Union, but differently than the United States. And so they are not trying to compete in many cases along the same lines as the United States. For example, if we wanna talk about military strategy, China does have global ambition in that they want to have power and influence globally, but they do not want to have a global military power projection. So a lot of people assume the United States, a main tool of our military strategy and, and our foreign policy has been to project military power around the globe and also foreign military intervention to intervene with force in a lot of foreign policy issues. Fareed Zakaria, once around foreign affairs at the United States since the end of World War II, has tried to overthrow 74 different regimes. Part of that is the democratic model, whether it's peacefully or through foreign military intervention, the United States has tried to impose that model on other countries because the view is that makes the world a better and safer place. China doesn't do any of these things. 
They do not form alliances. Uh, they are not trying to exercise their power primarily through military means outside of their region. Now, I do believe they want to dominate their region militarily, but not farther. Um, you know, they don't use arms sales as a main tool. They don't use for military intervention. You don't have one PLA troop abroad besides with UN peacekeeping operations. And so the desire to paint this as a Cold War is not only analytically uh, potentially incorrect, but I think it's leading to a lot of strategists and policymakers to pursue certain competitive strategies that might have worked for the United States against the Soviet Union, but not not against China. No one believes, you know, China is trying to make the world a, be a safer place for autocracy, but their best favorite partners are democracies. They do not want democracies to turn into autocracies. And no matter how much rhetoric the United States uses to try to promote this kind of ideological threat, I think people on the ground don't see it and they don't feel it. And so it's not working. Before I move on to Christopher, if I, if I could just follow up, Mariana. I agree with you that the, you know, there, there are significant differences, but are you arguing that then China does not pose any threat to American interests? Oh, no, I, I, I believe that China wants to uh, dominate Asia and that in this day and age, Asia is the most dynamic and economically important region of the world. So like during the Cold War, the battle was over Europe. Nowadays, China doesn't have to be a dominant power in Europe to be a superpower. They only have to be the dominant power in Asia, and that's their calculus. And in Asia, they have been very willing to use more military means to accomplish their goals. And so the military confrontation between China and the United States is going to happen in Asia. And one fundamental difference from the Cold War is this competition is much more likely to turn hot than it ever was with the Soviet Union for, for a number of reasons, one of which we don't have the same nuclear deterrent relationship with, with China. Um, but so, so they do pose a very serious threat to US interests, but not through the same means. The Chinese have been smarter at building and exercising power to delay a US reaction, to not spark our threat perceptions. Because we know, we see alliances threat. We see you know military forces coming into Latin America threat. So, but Belt and Road, what do we do with that, right? It took us a while to realize the threat because China's doing it differently. Now, one of the um, points Margaret made is that there is this uh, economic relationship between the United States and China that didn't exist between the United States and the Soviet Union. In fact, I, you know, I think China is still the United States' largest trading partner and, and US, the US is China's largest trading partner. Um, so it, it seems almost paradoxical to think of these two nations as engaged in the Cold War. Um, but it does also seem like there's no doubt there is an economic competition underway between these two countries, despite the amount of trade and cooperation. Christopher, can you tell us how you see this competition sort of playing out in the context of a broader Cold War, potentially between the two countries? Uh, thank you. Well, I think that's this time, the war as market portrayed is not a political one, it's more on the economic side. Now, we have to go back in terms of how you view China. You can view it as a 5,000 year of civilization, or you can view it as a 50 years of economic reform. So we have to think about in terms of a chess game. Maybe we think about a chess game. In 1972, uh, President Nixon and Henry Kissinger visited China, starting the opening game of the chess game to reopen. Then last few years, uh, President Trump played the middle game of the chess sets. It's limited certain moves like the trade war and uh, like the, in terms of the confrontational kind of rhetorics uh, against China. And now with the Biden's administration get to the end game. So then the question right now, we are in this crossroads. Are we going to have a winner and a loser or can we actually pivot into a draw? So that's, there will be no winners and no losers. Now, from the economics perspective, this time is much more complex. As Margaret pointed out, during the Cold War with Russia, the tie the, uh, between the economic tie between US and Russia is not as strong. But now the trade relationship between US and China is intertwined. China has a lot of investment in the US and they don't want to see it fail, even including the stock market exchange. 
And U.S. also has a lot of business interests in China, such as Boeing, such as Tesla. They need also to enter this market successfully so that we can continue the economic growth in the U.S. So when you have all this intertwined relationship, having the decoupling and having in terms of this confrontation is not constructive. So I hope that there's some way we can pivot this kind of hostile relationship between these two countries into a more manageable uh, cooperation and as well as competition. I think that I hope that both countries should respect each other's growth because China is no longer like what is being perceived after the Second World War or after the Opium War now. But there is a concern. If you go back in the history, uh, the Opium War started with the trade war because the trade was not balanced. So one thing led to another, it became the Opium War. But then the question is, that can we avoid that? Can we actually pivot into some kind of friendly competition? So it's such that both world big largest economy can be coexist. Now, China is also very important to do US trade. China is the third largest trading partner in the world. Then the question is, can US avoid, can afford not to trade with China? At the same time, China also view US as the biggest trading partner because a lot of manufacturing goods, they do ship into US, right? So therefore, I think that now is that we need to really question ourselves. Does the whole world want a war? Probably not. Does the whole world want to see peace? Definitely. So I think many countries are looking to United States and China to see if these two largest economy, two biggest, strongest country can actually show the respect such that can keep the peace. Christopher, um, I, I noticed in your bio that you're an expert on supply chains. Um, one of the Trump administration's goals over the last four years was, was an attempt to move uh, our dependence on the American dependence on China, on supply chains in China out of China. How, how much progress was made on that? And do you think that that could be a sign of things to come? That's a very good question. I think that the Trump administration was thinking about America first and try to uh, create jobs in the US. That's how the trade war was started. Now let's look at the, the, the actual fact. Uh, unfortunately, the trade war with China actually, uh, US actually did not improve. Uh, he, uh, e economically speaking, the number of job creations did not go up even before the COVID. Now it is actually even worse. Second, the trade deficit. The trade deficits with China did come down a little bit, but the trade deficits of US against the world actually hit the record high. Why? Because there's a supply chain shifted for some of the production from China to Vietnam. So now US is importing more goods from other ASEAN countries. So therefore, actually, US is still not creating their own supply chain, so to speak. Now, the Biden administration is committed to develop the, uh, the domestic or regional supply chain. So I think uh, we should look into the NAFTA. I think that is, could be more viable options now. But I think that we make a mistake. United States make, perhaps make a mistake to pull the trigger before they have a backup options. So if US want to bring the, the supply chain back in the US, you need to build the infrastructure, build the know-how, build the capability before you burn your bridge, right? So therefore, I think that this is where the Biden administrations need to rethink. If we want to really shift some of the, 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 the manufacturing jobs back to the United States, do we have the capability? Do we have the capacity? Do we have the right training for the people? Do we have the infrastructure to set up? So, and also how do we actually make sure that the cost is uh, manageable? How should the regulations for environmental issues, for some other labor issues can be more attractive for the private sectors to gradually move some of the jobs 
back to the United States. We are not there yet. But I think that hopefully the Biden administrations will set it into motion such that we can build a maybe a regional supply chain uh, leveraging the, uh, the NAFTA agreements that will be helpful. Margaret, going back to you, um, it seems like for, for many years there was an argument that the economic um, interdependence between China and the United States would be a moderating influence on the relationship. Um, but what does history tell us actually about two rival nations that have an economic relationship? Is the friction likely to lead to, to intensify or does the, does the sort of cooperation inherent in trade lead to a, uh, a, a more of a symbiosis in the relationship? Actually, I think um, the historical record isn't that, that reassuring. Um, before the First World War, which in some ways I think is a period rather like what we're going through today when you have what had been a hegemonic power in, in the shape of the British Empire beginning to feel the strain of being an empire and beginning to be concerned about its rivals, the United States for one, but of course Germany in Europe and, and Japan in the Far East. And so it was a tense and, and, and complicated time in the world. Germany and Britain were each other's largest trading partners. And there was not the type of the, the level of investment that you now get um, between the United States and China, but certainly um, German industrialists were investing in Britain and vice versa. And the ties between the two peoples were actually quite close. At the time of the First World War, when the war broke out in August 1914, four members of the British cabinet had been educated in Germany which gives you some indication of, of just the interchange that you got between the two countries. And of course, the British royal family was effectively German in those days. And that didn't stop them from becoming more and more hostile to each other. And I think not so much at the level of those who are making policy, although there was something of that, but at the level of public opinion. And this is something which, of course, is a factor today as well, that public opinion matters. It mattered then before 1914. And you got in Britain, for example, alarmist pamphlets saying the Germans are taking over, they are cutting into our trade markets around the world. Um, watch out when you look at what your children are playing with, they're playing with toy soldiers made in Germany. And so you should be worried about this. And, and what, you know, when you go out to concerts, you're listening to German music. I mean, there was some really silly stuff going on, but it played to a public fear. And you got something the same in Germany. Um, again, among public opinion, that the British are trying to keep us from our place in the sun. They, they, they are determined to, to prevent us from doing this. And that, I think, is what concerns me today. As we know, trade and, and close economic relationships can lead to friction. And we're seeing this, I think, between the United States and China. But what I think is also concerning is public opinion, because in both countries, public opinion matters. And I think increasingly in China, you're getting an assertive China. Um, you know, the government has had a series of patriotic education campaigns. And so you've got a generation which has grown up in an increasingly prosperous and powerful China, which is very conscious of China's place in the world and, and which I think is likely to put pressure on the government to assert China's role and to, to assert China in the world. And I think in the United States, of course, public opinion is very important. And so I think... We were dealing with a complicated relationship, and I think other factors will come in, not just economic ones, but I think factors of, of public opinion. And I think the finally, I mean, I think what both Oriana and, and Christopher Tang were saying is that you need, in the United States, perhaps even more than in China, a national strategy, which has been absent in the past four years, I think, in the Trump administration, which had policies in certain areas, but you didn't get the impression that they were thinking them through coherently. And you also need diplomacy, which has been downvalued and downgraded. You need, of course, you need military power, but you need diplomacy to try and deal with issues between countries before they become poisonous. And I'm hoping that with the change of administration in the United States, there will be an attempt to do this. One of the uh, features of the Cold War was basically a pressure on countries around the world to essentially choose sides. Um, or, you know, there was more than just pressure to choose sides, but efforts to recruit countries onto one side or another. Um, to what extent is that likely to be a feature of the competition between the United States and China? And, and given China's large footprint in the global economy, how is that likely to play out? Um, Ariana, maybe you could tackle that. Uh, this is a very 
very important question on coalition building. Um, the first thing to say is you are not going to see the sort of breakout into camps, into blocks like we saw in the Cold War, largely because China during you know the period of its rise, you know, I would say since the mid-1990s, has identified uh, this idea of preventing a coalition from forming against them as the primary goal and mission of their foreign policy. They recognize not only that it would be uh, you know, detrimental to their rise, but if they were going to build coalitions, you know, who would their partners be? They very, uh, in Chinese writings, they say very clearly that the United States already got all the best partners, right? The richest partners, the democracies, you know, what are they going to, you know, fight Japan and the United States with like their best friend in Cambodia? Like, of course not, or North Korea. So their strategy has always been friend to all, enemy to none. And particularly to make sure that they don't pursue foreign policies that alienate U.S. allies and partners. So instead of pursuing alliances, they pursue something called strategic partnerships, which their most important strategic partnerships are actually with the United States and, and, and Europe, you know, U.S. allies and partners in the region. So they're very cognizant of trying to have positive relations with countries. For that reason, you know, the threat perceptions in Europe, for example, vis-a-vis -vis China are very weak. And, and also in many cases in, in, in countries in Asia. So it's not the case like in the Cold War. It was very clear that the Soviet Union presented a threat to U.S. allies and partners, and therefore these countries would coalesce uh, in order to counter it. So that's one problem of forming an, a coalition. And the second was already mentioned, which is U.S. allies and partners, many of them, and most of them in Asia, have their number one trading partner is China. So they're very concerned about the economic relationship. But also one fundamental difference is the United States relies militarily on this coalition more so than it ever did during the Cold War because of technology and geography. The United States can only successfully fight a war in Asia if they have access to bases in Asia. We cannot project power efficiently, you know, from Hawaii, for somewhere, even from Guam it is too far away. So when countries choose neutrality, when they choose to not take a side at all, in effect, they're choosing China. Because if they don't choose the United States, the, the United States can't protect them. But one of the additional problems with coalition building is that unlike the Soviet Union and the United States, which both were very demanding of their partners and allies, the United States asks partners and allies to potentially put their economic security, you know, national security on the line to support the United States in this sort of great power competition with China. China asks just for neutrality, right? Please don't do anything. They don't ask for them to side with them. Um, and, and so that's in the region. And then more broadly, a lot of what China asks of countries is about internal politics. Don't say anything about Hong Kong, you know, the Uyghurs, Tibet. And countries around the world, maybe in Africa and the Middle East, they're like, okay, you know, that's all you ask of me. The United States wants me to completely change my whole financial system and maybe, you know, get rid of my autocratic government, but you just don't want me to say anything about Taiwan. Um, and so it's very hard for the United States uh, to build coalitions uh, against China because we demand so much more. It's so much riskier. And China has not presented itself as, as this th existential threat to U.S. allies and partners to make that type of coalition building successful. That's a really good point. I mean, it, it does raise the question, though, in, of whether China even presents an existential threat to the United States, despite the uh, you know, concern in public opinion. What would be, I, I think, you know, we kind of need to boil down a little bit. What is the U.S. interest in this rivalry with, with China? What, what is the U.S., what should the U.S. be trying to achieve? I don't think China is an existential threat to the United States. Um, different political scientists have debates about what states want. And the main view is states just want to survive. Some other political scientists would say states have objectives beyond mere survival. And I would kind of fall into that camp. So, you know, China is not, going to be invading the United States. Actually, they're not going to be invading, you know, Australia, Japan, or South Korea anytime soon either. But military attack and occupation of territory is no longer the only way that a country can, you know, limit the freedom of, of a government to choose what's best for their people. Right? You can use other methods now, more indirect methods, economic coercion being one of them. And so, again, since Asia is the is the most prosperous and dynamic, I would say, part of the world, the United States view, I think, is twofold. The first is that we need to have freedom of action in international law in this area. 
people say that, you know, once China dominates Asia, they won't, you know, restrict trade or they won't disrupt things. But I think we've seen when they have the power to, they are very well, they, they use coercion uh, pretty freely. And so I wouldn't want to give them that kind of control over things. Um, and so the, we don't want to have a not, it's not even a hostile power. A country that does not have U.S. interests and the interests of our allies 100% at the top of the agenda shouldn't be in full control of this of this type of um, area, this region, uh, militarily. So I think what the United States wants is to prevent that. And then, of course, we do have allies and partners like Taiwan, uh, democratic partners that, that China does threaten in an existential way. Uh, and you know, the United States doesn't want China to be using force to resolve its outstanding maritime and territorial issues. And more and more, that's becoming uh, a possibility. This is sort of anecdotal because, you know, I'm not a historian, but just as an American, I think World War II, uh, World War One, really made Americans believe that we need to be able to operate freely militarily around the world to maintain peace. Like that is a part of U.S. national security. If a country doesn't want us somewhere, it means bad news, right? It means something's coming. And maybe we say, and a lot of people do, let's abandon Taiwan, let's abandon our commitments and go home. Yeah, you know, we did that in Europe. And then things get so bad, the United States get dragged back in. So I think that's a historical narrative that's in the back of a lot of people's minds of like, we can't let China push us out because being dragged back in is going to be infinitely worse in terms of casualties and loss of treasure and everything like that. It's better to deter conflict than come back into fight one. Thanks. Um Going back to the economic question, it, it does seem like a lot of the friction between the two countries is grounded in specific complaints about Chinese trade practices, the structure of the Chinese economy, everything from the role of the state to intellectual property uh, protection. Um, Christopher, like I've seen that the United States has tried to recruit other countries um, to sort of put pressure on, on China to, to force China to sort of behave in a particular way on trade. To what extent do you think that sort of strategy is effective? Um, and I got one more question about trade after that. Thank you. Uh, well, I think that's uh, coming back to Oriana's point earlier. Uh, I think that China is not challenging US from the military perspective. It's more on the economic side. Uh, maybe we take a step back. What does China want? And that may help us to understand what kind of steps they've taken. I think a lot of people may have forgotten that China was the world's biggest economy in the world for many centuries, before the 18th century. So therefore, the China dream in the perspective is to reestablish the economic power of China uh, in the world. So I think through 50 years of reform and hard work, and China has made tremendous progress. Now, how do they exert influence? It's through coalition and partnership, not military, not politically, but through trade partnership. Last year, China actually worked with the ASEAN countries to form the, uh, what they call regional comprehensive economic partnership with the other ASEAN countries, uh, such as Vietnam, such as uh, Thailand, and also Australia and New Zealand and Japan. And then at the same time, that's, uh, I think that's now, uh, that is kind of defunct that US uh, vetoed withdrawal from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, uh, Trans Partnership. So US want to go along. I think that was, a, in my opinion, it was a mistake. I wrote an article about that because I do not think that a single tree does not make a forest. So I think that when you are actually quite trying to counteract with China, you need alliances and partnership. Now, China is actually exerting a lot of influence economically around the world, not just ASEAN countries. Also, they have the One Belt, One Road initiative they try to open up the economic reform from China all the way from Middle Asia to the Middle East, all the way to Europe, and hopefully to reach out to Africa. Yes, because they know that the natural resources would be the most limited supply. Whoever going to control the natural resource will control the world. 
that includes water, wood, uh, maybe uh, rare earth, some kind of rare minerals. So that is also very important. Now, for the One Belt, One Road initiative, it's not just building the road. It's trying to use along with different stops to redevelop many countries that were neglected for centuries, including Kazakhstan, some of the Middle East. So China also forming alliances with the Middle East, right? So I think that through this kind of economic uh, 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 partnership, China can become a dominant economic power in the world. Now, how should U.S. deal with that? Ah, that's a good question. Is China, uh, U.S. The, the mistake withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific uh, trans uh, Partnership? It was a mistake. I hope that President Biden will rethink. Now, keep, this is a very interesting element. Just last month, uh, Prime Minister Johnson want to join the TPP, although England is not exactly on the, uh, on the Pacific Rim. But because UK realized that this, if we're forming the partnership around the Pacific Rim, that including Asia, is very important. So I think that will signify why US need to rethink about the TPP. Right now, US is only focusing on three countries. They call it free and open Indo-Pacific partnership. That includes Australia, India, and Japan. Now, this would not make it, would not cut it. Why? Because it's, you combine all these countries, the, econ the economic power is not there. As Oriana pointed out, the economic power is going to reside in Asia. So therefore, I think that we need, the United States need to rethink about how to work with different uh, countries along the Pacific Rim, such that would be have a counterbalance of the economic power of what China want to exert. Chris, just following up on that, um, as China sort of expands its economic partnerships with other nations in the region and in the world, do you think that it's basically pushing a different set of economic rules, a different set of economic practices that the United States objects to and finds it difficult to accept? That's a very good question, but the tie is changing. Uh, on December 30th, uh, China actually signed an initial agreement with EU. That is called the Comprehensive uh, Agreement on Investments. Under the agreement, uh, China will work with Europe to waive uh, some of the, uh, the requirements, including tra technology transfer. Before that's after you uh, invest in China, you need to transfer some of the technology to the uh, state-owned enterprises in China. Second, they also allow European companies to become solely owned to operate in China. And thirdly, uh, they also agree to work with EU on the, uh, uh, on the labor uh, in terms of regulations. They work with the NGO, the ILO, International Labor Organizations, to make sure the worker con uh, working conditions will comply with all these regulations by, exerted by uh, uh, ILO. So therefore, I think that if we take a step back, China actually is at a different level now. China wants to exert the power. At the same time, they want to be respected. So in the case, actually, there is a time window if U.S. and other countries can work with China and say, hey, we embrace you, we uh, recognize your success, but at the same time, if you want to earn the respect in the world, you need to become a leader, act like a leader in terms of working conditions, in terms of uh, environmental regulations, and also intellectual property, you need to respect all the international rules such that you can earn the international respect. Now, I think there is a time window because during the World Economic uh, Forum, President Xi actually declared that. They said that, well, China wants the respect. China wants to showcase to the world that they can do good. So I think that actually many countries should pick it back on that, leverage that commitment and say, hey, we agree with you, 
let's work together. Let's really raise the level of the working conditions for all the common workers around the world, including China. So I think that is an opportunity to, to flip it from a negative to a positive. Why not leverage these moments? It's interesting. I mean, labor rights is, is one of the issues that, that seems to come up in the discussions um, and the objections to the Chinese trade practices. Another is basically China's growing footprint in, in, um, in technology. Uh, it seems like technology will be um, another arena for competition between the United States and China. Oriana, to what extent is that like a security concern for the United States and for, should it be for other countries as well? Technological competition is a direct and indirect security concern for the United States. So first on the direct side, um, you know, I think uh, was previously mentioned by Chris, you know, of course, the United States is still reliant on global trade and maybe we're reliant on supply chains, uh, you know, more than we were before. But I think part of the key issue was to not be so reliant on China um, and to disperse those those chains elsewhere. Uh, When it comes to technology, one of the key issues is if China is using commercial uh, and in that case, civilian relationships to improve the lethality of their military. So something like Boeing, I think Chris mentioned Boeing, huge concern about commercial aircraft and manufacturing and sharing of technologies because one of the main weaknesses of the Chinese military is propulsion, is their engines. The one way that the United States has an advantage over China if we did get into some sort of uh, you know, conflict is that our aircraft perform better against Chinese aircraft. But they are trying, and Xi Jinping has a policy specifically to get technologies from overseas to enhance their military capabilities. And one of the other aspects that is disconcerting and problematic for universities and research institutions is that China does send military personnel uh, to uh, US research facilities to try to get that type of information. So of course, a lot of these are dual use. They have commercial purposes, um, but a lot of them also have military uses. And so in this realm, the United States, I think, you know, is, is trying to control the access export of these types of technologies and this know-how to China more so than it has in the past. But it can be very complicated uh, and difficult. And currently there are, uh, like CFIUS, there are certain um, processes in place to try to uh, assess, for example, Chinese investment in U.S. companies, uh, but there it needs to be expanded. And I think the United States is, is trying to expand it. Indirectly, one of the main concerns is, you know, China is gathering or, you know, potentially gathering a lot of data through their technological expansion around the world, specifically through Huawei and 5G networks. And data is kind of like gold to tech companies and to medical companies and to militaries, right? The more you know about people, the decisions they make, the better you can improve some sort of like artificial intelligence, automation, machine learning, types of systems of which, you know, the future of of military seem to be going in that direction. And there's also a coercive aspect, you know, China might no longer, you know, espionage could change. If all of a sudden they could specifically target elites, they know all their bank accounts, they know what they like to buy type of stuff, and they can, you know, use targeted cyber attacks to really disrupt someone's life who says something bad about Taiwan. Uh, You know, that could be, uh, those are sort of more indirect, hypothetical, latent um, threats that stem from just their their dominance over some of these these, uh, markets such as 5G. But the lethality of the PLA is is my primary concern. And I often say to tech companies in the United States, I understand you want to make money, but what are you going to tell the American people when on the other side, Americans are dead because of what you did? That's not something we want to hear in the future. We're about to um, open it up to questions from from our global digital audience. Um, Before doing that, I wanted to turn back to to Margaret and maybe to each of you as well. one of the features of the, the Cold War was the uh, essentially the success in preventing a, a, a hot war between the two superpowers, despite the presence of uh, uh, quite costly proxy wars around the world. To what extent do you think that this um, pattern could play out again between the United States and China? Margaret, you want to start? I think we tend to look at the Cold War in rather a rosy light. Um, we managed, or the world managed to avoid 
it turning into a hot war between the two superpowers. But I think we now know just how close we came on a number of occasions. I mean, not just during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but again in 1983 and on other occasions as well. And there are moments when one side did and possibly will do in the future something risky. The Soviet's invasion of Afghanistan or the American involvement in Korea or Vietnam, which could have brought in the other side. And we haven't really mentioned Taiwan. I mean, it's come up a bit, but I think it is a possible danger point between the United States and China. Xi Jinping has been making it, I think, very clear that he sees Taiwan as part of China and he is becoming impatient with this long standoff where Taiwan is not recognized as fully independent, but is not formally part of China. And I think that is a danger because it will be a real challenge for the United States if China tries to do anything militarily. And I'm not reassured by the amount of investment that the Chinese have been making in military things military. And I'm not reassured by some of the language. It seems to me this is potentially a danger, a danger spot. And so I think we have to remember, and I think, you know, again, I, I'm sorry, I always go back to the First World War. You can have all sorts of agreements, you can have a framework for understanding, you can have dip diplomatic relations, and, and we have to hope that these will improve between the United States and China, but you can also have accidents. And I go back to what I was saying about public opinion. I mean, there is a lot going on in the South China and East China Seas. Um, American military presence, Chinese military presence, and it's unfortunately too easy to imagine an accident, an incident, which will get magnified. And so I think we're going through a very difficult time. And I think we shouldn't take too much comfort from the Cold War. We got out of that, I think, by the skin of our teeth. Um, but there were moments when we nearly didn't. If I can be even more pessimistic than Margaret about this issue, um, I'm actually not worried about accidents. You know, I know that's a story that is, you know, yes, US military is operating a lot more in these areas, so is Chinese military. but. If China doesn't believe it can prevail in a conflict, it is not going to let it escalate to that level. The main concern I have is about deliberate uses of force. So we can go through, you know, the whole Chinese writings on war control escalation. You know, they believe inadvertent escalation to not exist. Um, and I kind of, you know, they, th they, they ask themselves, why would we fight a war when we know we're going to lose? Um, we're not going to. And so I think that is less of a concern. My main concern goes to something that Margaret said, which is about Xi Jinping. You know, he has very clearly stated that um, the status quo is not enough with Taiwan, that he wants to see concrete progress towards unification. And he's made statements saying that he will not pass this down generation to generation, which, you know, the, com the, the average Chinese person in my discussions, you know, in, in China uh, understands that this issue is going to be resolved during his tenure. On top of that, peaceful reunification is not working, and the Chinese are realizing it's not working. I, I participated in a track 1.5 with them on this issue, and they were like, I guess Taiwan is never going to decide on its own to be a part of China. And so now, going back to public opinion, polls in China show that the vast majority of Chinese people uh, are moving towards wanting to see armed reunification. They think that they want that reunification to happen in three to five years. The second most popular answer is one to two. They demonstrate an understanding. 75% say that this will mean a major long war potentially with the United States. And even if we say that because of economic reasons or what have you, that no one wants a war on either side, I will tell you the Chinese military's primary focus for the past 25 years has been preparing for a war with the United States. And more and more is with the rebalancing, with the great power competition, the United States military is trying to make its primary focus to prepare a war against China. And so even if neither side wants that war, I think when Xi Jinping believes he has the ability to uh, forcibly reunify with Taiwan, and they just finished a round of significant military reforms last year, so I think uh, he'll have that confidence in about five to seven years, then whether the United States intervenes or not is not going to be a determining factor. If they think they can beat the United States, which if the United States does not make significant changes to force posture in Asia, that is a possibility in five to seven years, I think they're going to go for it. And we're going to find ourselves uh, in, in a conflict with China. Chris, you've argued that you know, the competition is primarily economic and not military. What role does Taiwan in particular play in that economic competition? Uh, it's a question for me. 
Yes, for you, Chris. Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah, I didn't know. Thank you. I think Taiwan can play a very critical role. As a point out that in terms of putting the uh, political uh, issues aside, there is a technology war going on between US and China. Uh, as Ariane pointed out, the 5G is critical. Uh, that's why UK also expressed concern and also European country also uh, expressed concern over relying on Huawei in China. Yeah, so that's why I think US uh, tried to slow down the, the process of the development of 5G and AI. So that's why that's President Trump actually stopped the in terms of companies that are using US patent technology and traded with China. That has actually prevents Huawei to develop the Kirin chips, which is based on three micron or to five micron chips that they cannot develop. That will slow down the process to five to, to seven years, all right? So that would be a, a little, give uh, US a little uh, time to see if they catch up quickly, right? So now, but I think that you, China is not standing still. They know that it will slow down the process so now they are actually trying to woo or to recruit heavily the Taiwan engineers to work for the Chinese company to develop the, uh, the chips. Now, but U.S. also trying to get TSMC, uh, the largest integrated circuit manufacturers in the world from Taiwan, to build a multi-multi-billion dollar factory in Arizona. So... So now I think that is forcing Taiwan to choose sides. Then of course, uh, Taiwan will actually choose United States over China. But then to what extent can they prevent the talents flow to China because they're willing to pay a much higher salaries. So I think that that is a, in the economic uh, equations could come into play. But I think right now using the technology uh, uh, sanctions, uh, so US has a five year uh, lead on that. But then the next few years will be critical to see whether we can reach a coexistence without any kind of military actions. And hopefully that's we can keep the peace. I'm going to go to some of the uh, questions from our uh, viewers around the world. Um, first question, uh, is containment a viable strategy? And if not, why is competition between the United States and China necessary? Maybe, Margaret, you could tackle that and give us a little bit of a sense of what containment meant in the Cold War. Well, what containment meant in the Cold War was, and it was a policy adopted early by the United States, was that Russia was, or the Soviet Union was an opportunistic power, that it would move into areas where it felt it could get away with it, but that if it was confronted either diplomatically or militarily or in a combination of the two, it would pull back and that it was the way to deal with it was to buckle up for a long haul, that the United States should be prepared with its allies, and allies were very important in this, for the long haul, for the long term, and that eventually the pressure of the, of the Cold War would, would become too much for the Soviet Union, which in, in, in fact I think happened, that the Soviet system would find it very difficult to sustain. I mean, the United States was so much more powerful economically and militarily and it was a very long drawn out process, but I think probably the correct one. Um, it was designed to try and avoid a direct hot war between the two superpowers, but to contain and push the Soviet Union back. But it depended, first of all, on the United States having an enormous superiority in power. I mean, the Soviet Union never had economic power to compete with the United States, and, and it was ruling over a lot of very unhappy people in the center of Europe who didn't want to be within the Soviet empire. What the United States had was both economic and military power, and it had, for the most part, willing allies. Allies who were prepared to support it were not there because they'd been coerced. I don't think we can see a similar analogy today, but I do think the importance of alliances is something important. And again, I think this will be important for the United States going forward. I mean, there is this myth, I think, that the Chinese are very good at building partnerships and alliances. You know, and when you actually look at their relationships with many of their Asian neighbors, they've managed to alienate a lot of them. I mean, I don't think Chinese diplomacy is always that subtle, um, particularly given the tone at the moment with the sort of wolf warriors in the foreign ministry. And so I think both sides are going to be looking for ways to build alliances. And I think very important for the United States to do it. And again, I think the United States, after the Trump administration, has some rebuilding to do. I have another question from a viewer. Um, 
is China more interested in economic or military dominance? Their extensive interests in the Middle East seem to be entirely economic. Oriani, you want to tackle that? Sure. I, you know, I think it depends on the region. I think the questioner is correct that when it comes to the Middle East, uh, Europe, Africa, uh, Latin America, their interests are mainly economic. And not in, in many cases, though, economic interests do lead to a desire to, for military dominance, because historically, great powers have wanted, you know, through gumbo diplomacy and other things to ensure that their economic and commercial interests are protected. There are, you know, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Chinese at any point in time that are traveling overseas. I think it's telling that until recently, the most popular box office hit in China was the movie Wolf Warrior, uh, Wolf Warrior 2, which Wolf Warrior Diplomacy is named after, which is about a Chinese former special ops um, officer going to protect Chinese nationals overseas. And so I think people worry about the tendency of the military following those commercial interests. But to date, China sees the use of military instruments to protect their commercial interests as very ineffective, as the primary reason for the U.S. decline. Um, and so they like to rely more on local law enforcement authorities and basically being friends with whoever's in power. So not choosing sides, even, you know, as much during civil conflicts, not to alienate anyone to protect their interests. Is that sustainable? You know, I don't know. But for the, for the meantime, they want to have political and economic veto power in the rest of the world, but not military dominance. Now, in Asia, however, and to be fair, what Asia means has expanded from leader to leader. So it used to be that China just needed to dominate Northeast Asia militarily, sort of Korea's Japan. Then it expanded to the South China Sea, Southeast Asia, and then under Xi Jinping expanded also to Central Asia. So now Asia is a very big concept. But in that area, uh, Chinese thinkers, strategists are very clear. They need to have military dominance and they need the United States. And part of that means that the United States military has to go. Now, people have different views of how possible that is, right? That means the United States would have to abrogate its alliances with Japan and South Korea. You know, that's that's not very likely, though, during the Trump administration, when Trump himself would say things like he wanted to pull troops out of Korea, the Chinese got very giddy thinking, oh, maybe this is more possible than not. But at the very least, a lot of what China is doing in terms of its aggressiveness is trying to reduce uh, the frequency of U.S. military operations in its vicinity um, so that it can have a military upper hand. And so, yes, in Asia, it is military dominance. I would say outside of Asia, uh, it's it's not really that. That, um, military and focused, but they could always be driven in that direction. I would like to comment on that, if I may. Yeah. So I think that in terms of containment, come back to your or, 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 uh, original questions. So I think the U.S. can do something else to change the narrative in terms of the confrontational attitude to change to a different dialogues. So I think that using Margaret's term in terms of diplomacy is critical at this moment in time. So I think that one is forming in terms of partnership, could be economic partnership with many countries like Europe, as well as a TPP. I think it could be a, a first step. Secondly, is piggyback on President Xi's statements during the World Economic Forum it may be to say, hey, maybe we can jointly to work together to overcome some of the world's biggest problems. If you want to be recognized as world leaders, the world is facing many crises that maybe United States and China can work together to overcome. So in the case, we can, both countries can be reviewed as the world leaders. For example, first, the COVID, the world health crisis. Both countries need to figure out what to do. Instead of fighting against each other, it's not going to solve anything. Second, climate change. I think China is already committed to be carbon neutral by 2060. Third, the war on poverty. Now, China has actually, uh, in, because economic reform, has actually lifted over 800 million people out of poverty but there's still poor people in China and President Xi want to improve the income inequality. At the same time, US has war on poverty since Lyndon Johnson's era, but the war on poverty is not making much progress. So I think this is also at the time to think about it. 
Then the other one in terms of uh, job creation is a major problems. Because right now in the United States, we have a lot of domestic problems because of the economic and job creations. We have not done a good job on that now. But this problem will also occur in China because of automation. Once you have the robotics, once you have industry 4.0 technology available, actually they don't need that many workers. They have the problem. U.S. have the problem. Then the question is, given with the advancement of technology, how can both countries create an innovative ideas such that we can keep more people employed and also can have some kind of a, a containment? And also the last one is aging, aging problem. The world's population is aging. China also has a serious aging problem. Then the question is, how can we deal with these issues? So I think if US and China take a step back and say, hey, China wants to be recognized and respected as world leader. That's what leaders do. Now, once you have using diplomatic relationship and try to encourage China to focus on these issues instead of fighting instead of military actions, I think this is something that both leaders should consider to keep the world peace. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. I think that's one of the sort of key challenges for the, um, for the relationship, whether, whether cooperation in these areas can exist at the same time that competition in other areas is, is underway. Um, we have, you know, we have a lot of, of uh, viewers from Canada, I, and um, I have a question here that's specific to Canada. Do you believe that Canada should respect the one China policy? Um, Margaret, do you want to tackle that first? Well, it's been our policy, I think, and I think we're not big enough. I mean, we're very big, as we know, geographically, but we're a small or medium power. And I think we would be very foolish to change. And I think we'd be very foolish to get involved in what is essentially a dispute between the United States and China. Um, but I think from the Canadian perspective, I mean, we have already felt what it can be like to incur the wrath of the Chinese government. Um, you know, there are two Canadian citizens now being held virtually as hostages in Chinese prisons um, in return for, for, for the, 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 the managing director of, of Huawei. Um, so I think we've got to step carefully here. I think the only way Canada can cope in what, in, in what is becoming a difficult world is, is to have alliances and to work with other like-minded powers. But of course, it is in our interest to get on with China as well. And China has a huge interest in what we have a great deal of, and that's natural resources. Before, Ariana, you tackle this question, I, I do think it's interesting that... Um, you know, there's there's pressure or discussion in other countries, you know, uh, about changing their their attitude toward Taiwan and, and the one China policy. When in the United States, that's the policy as well. And it seems unlikely any other country is going to do it until the United States adapts a change. Do you think that's a debate that's going to be underway in Washington at all? Uh, no, I don't think that's the debate. What, what people are debating is whether to change the other aspect of U.S.-Taiwan um, policy, which is strategic ambiguity. So recently there was a, an influx of sort of articles. The, the current U.S. policy is that we're somewhat ambiguous about what we would actually do in what scenarios. Um, and there were some uh, uh, strategists who thought if we were very clear, yes, we're going to defend Taiwan in all contingencies or what have you, this would increase the deterrent against China. Now, traditionally, the United States has been ambiguous not only for the sake of China, but to not embolden Taiwan, right? There is always this alliance. You can always be fearful of entrapment as well. But the additional issue of abandoning this is I actually think it serves to undermine deterrence. So right now, strategic ambiguity, if the United States makes it very clear and we are credible to China, that we are 100% gonna intervene, that changes the war plan for China. Right. So so I won't go into too much detail, but I'll just say this. If China is not sure the United States will intervene, it's more likely to start out with graduated types of coercion, maybe missile campaigns some blockade, try to force Taiwan to capitulate. That gives the United States time to amass our forces in the region such that we have a, a significant military advantage. And and if we did intervene, we would win. 
If China is 100% certain the United States is going to intervene, they will hit U.S. bases first, basically eliminating our capacity to get ourselves involved. The United States will not have the time to amass forces over the course of weeks that is necessary uh, to prevail in a longer conflict. And meanwhile, China will have already occupied China. Taiwan in the in the meantime, um, that makes them go much more for the full amphibious assault than the graduated approach. And so I actually think uh, while people are debating whether or not we should abandon our policy of ambiguity of defense of Taiwan, I think it's important to maintain that uncertainty in the minds of PRC strategic planners of whether the United States is 100 percent in or not. Chris, do you want to weigh in, too? Do you think um, countries like Canada and other trade partners should be reconsidering the one China policy? Well, I think on these issues, I agree with Oriana. It's better to be ambiguous instead of showing all the hands on all the cards. So I think that if we have, can keep this kind of relationship ambiguity, then we keep it as a status quo. So in the case, uh, China also tried to figure, uh, is it really that beneficial to carry a, a old out war uh, over Taiwan? So I think that if the United States and Canada can maintain some kind of uh, ambiguous kind of relationship, so that may actually can keep the, the music going. I think we're out of time. Um, I wanted to thank uh, each of the panelists for participating today. What's been, a, I think, a very insightful conversation. It's been a pleasure to speak with all of you. I wanted to thank uh, Zocalo and the University of Toronto for presenting this conversation and to the Consulate of the Consulate General of Canada in Los Angeles for supporting the series. You can find this conversation on Zocalo's website tomorrow, along with short interviews with all our guests today. Thank you again for joining us and enjoy the rest of your evening or morning, wherever you are. <laughs>